Sometimes policies and rules lag behind the innovations the healthcare system is capable of. A good example of this is how to best deploy the talents and skills of today's clinical staff. Organizations know the status quo, reinforced by professional silos, must give way to much more team-based, patient-centered designs. But forging ahead with new models often bumps into regulations, traditions, training, and turf. And yet, in order to provide value-based care and to ensure much better coordination and outcomes, new care teams, often anchored by nurse practitioners and other allied health professionals and powered by powerful doctor-nurse practitioner partnerships, are emerging. And everyone has something to learn from the possibilities in the acute and outpatient settings alike. Medical, nursing, pharmacy, and health administration students today are being taught that team-based care is the future and that the future begins now. So what does this actually look like now? That's what we're going to explore on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. This is offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. A happy new year to everyone. A thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time, we welcome you. We hope it won't be your last. WIHI has been going since May of 2009, so we're thrilled to have you with us. One of the most exciting things for me about assembling today's show is how normal the creation of new kinds of care teams is to each of my guests, and also how normal it seemed to many more people and organizations I had the pleasure of speaking with in planning this WIHI. And this is in large part because what makes sense to patients and communities is at the forefront here, communities eager to improve health and health care in ever more comprehensive and cost-effective ways. So that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about today, and I hope you'll be as well. If you'd like to tweet, we invite you to do so either during or after the program. Any comments or remarks uh, that you'd like to share, please include at IHI in your tweets, and that way we can bring others from the improvement community who follow IHI on Twitter into the conversation. So let me introduce today's guests, and a reminder that their longer bios and all sorts of achievements and accolades are on the WIHI web pages on our website, as well as on their own organization's websites. So let me start off with Susan B. Hess-Miller. She is the Senior Advisor for Nursing at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. She's been with the foundation since 1997, and she leads their strategies to address nurse and nurse faculty shortages. Uh, Increasingly, this is all tied to the goals of health reform and more patient-centered care. There is so much I could say about what Sue has been involved in, including helping me with the planning of this WIHI. Welcome, Sue. Thank you, Madge. It's a pleasure to be here. Terrific. Okay. Kathy Rick is also with us. She's the Chief Officer, Officer, Office of Nursing Services at the Department of Veterans Affairs. She's responsible for matching strategic planning for nursing personnel with the needs of nearly 6 million veterans each year. And it's great to have you with us, Kathy, as well. This is just my, this is another way for us to get a sound check. Hello, Kathy. 
All right, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to chime in. I am here and glad. <laughs> all right, Thank good. You. Well, we, we tried. All right, so this is January. We're all shaking off the holiday cobwebs here. Welcome, everyone. My apologies. Yes, uh, just sign in. Uh, Patricia Garrity is the Associate Dean for Community Programs at Drexel University College of Nursing and Health Professions. She's also the founder and director of a nurse-managed, federally qualified health center in North Philadelphia. Welcome, Patty. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. And Daryl Lynch at the United Club in a Denver airport between one place and another, some of which has included vacation. He's a physician. He's vice chair of ambulatory medicine at Children's Mercy Hospitals and Clinics. He also directs the Systems Division of Adolescent Medicine. Welcome, Daryl. Thank you. Good to be here. Great to have you. All right. Now we're coming back to Sue. Uh, Let's start our collaboration here. Sue, through your work at Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, you've clearly got a broad and long view of the journey to improve the skills of nurses across the continuum of care and all that educational preparation that's necessary for the healthcare system that's changing under our feet. The IOM report on the future of nursing uh, put an interesting road map or stake in the ground about a vision here, so I wonder if you could remind us of those findings and then kind of bring us forward to this discussion we're having on WIHI today about care teams, and welcome, Sue. Thank you, Madge, and thank you for having me. Yes, as I was saying before, uh, as everyone knows, the United States faces many health care challenges, including an aging and more diverse population and more patients with chronic illness and uh, a looming primary care shortage. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and AARP, our partners in this effort, believe that we can address these challenges now by maximizing the use of nurses, which is a big part of the Future of Nursing report, and that's why we're leading the Future of Nursing campaign for action to improve healthcare through nursing. And one of the campaign's goals is to maximize the use of advanced practice registered nurses, or APRNs, who have graduate degrees and who are educated and credentialed to examine, diagnose, and treat patients. And as we know, APRNs are at the center of many of the innovations that we talk about. Um, They improve quality and contain costs and increase access. And I know that Daryl and Kathy and Patricia will speak to this in a few minutes. However, outdated laws, regulations, and organizational policies restrict APRNs at this point and other skilled providers from practicing to the full extent of their education and training. And these outdated barriers limit fully qualified nurses and others from expanding access to preventive and primary care. And there is a map that you can put up, Match. Okay. Uh, state law determines whether APRNs can work independently of a physician. You can see from this map that in 2012, 18 states and the District of Columbia permitted nurse practitioners to diagnose and treat patients and prescribe medication without a physician's legal or regulatory involvement. 32 states required physician involvement to diagnose and treat or prescribe medications or both. The evidence overwhelmingly, as the Future of Nursing report shows, that expanding scope of practice for nurse practitioners does not result in lower quality of care. And the report called for, actually, removal of outdated laws, regulations, and policies that prevent nurses from practicing to the full extent of their education. And then, and the recently released National Governors Association report just followed suit. They released this report a few weeks ago that concluded that states struggling to meet the growing demand for primary care services 
should expand these laws. But we believe that patients will benefit really manage when all practitioners can practice to the full extent of their education and training, including the entire team, including doctors, nurses, and all others. And we believe that the best patient care comes from an interprofessional cadre of health professionals who practice together on patient-centered teams. Greater collaboration among all health professionals will significantly improve patient care, including reduced medical errors and hospital readmissions. Enabling nurses to practice to the full extent of their education and training will help with all of these endeavors. And then finally, I just wanted to show um, my last slide um, about the campaign for action uh, in joining our efforts. And you can go to yeah, thecampaignforaction.org to sign up, and you may hear more about it on this uh, show today. So thank you, Matt. Okay, thanks, Sue. That particular, uh, the, the action one, we'll make sure that that's in the resources. Um, we had a little trouble formatting that uh, for a slide, but we'll make sure that uh, we include that in the resource document as well. So we, we can certainly re- reference back to it. Thank you. Um, you know, I think that, um, first of all, I want to say uh, a big thank you to Sue again because she led me to all the fine uh, people uh, that you're going to hear from and many more uh, that I spoke with, which is if we had a four-hour show today, we would have been able to include all of them. And I think the point of that is, is while Sue is talking very much at a a policy level and some of the sort of broad view here of um, what's possible under health reform. Part of what Sue was able to do is kind of just point her finger around the country at all kinds of things that are already happening. Um, Whether you're in uh, one of these blue states or (laughs) lavender states on this slide or not, um, your various things are moving ahead. I think kind of demonstrating perhaps what we need and oftentimes in this country things have to come from all different, from the bottom, from the top, and and every which way sideways. So um, I, I think that's part of what we're, we're trying to knit together here today. So with that, let me turn to Kathy Rick. Now, of course, the VA is in its own interesting situation in able, being able, Kathy, to move ahead on some new system designs, and maybe we can all then learn from by your example. So what's going on uh, at the VA um, strategically? that is really um, maybe sort of turning some of the assumptions about how to care for patients on its head. Go ahead, Kathy. Thanks, Madge, and hello to everyone. Uh, It's really a privilege to be able to represent VHA's uh, transformation initiatives that were uh, actually initially launched in uh, late 2009. And uh, what we're talking about is what everybody's talking about, the desired future state or in today's vernacular, it might be called the new normal. At any rate, uh, the, the kinds of things that we have been working on are very similar to the principles and concepts of uh, medical home models and um, other uh, similar specialty care models. We've decided to focus our uh, medical home model in a very broad way focused on patient-aligned care teams rather than referring to it as a medical home. Uh, It was our sense that uh, giving it a label of medical home uh, tended to be confusing to our enrollees as well as some of our stakeholders. And uh, quite frankly, we weren't sure that it captured the essence of the full scope of the model that we wanted it to be. We wanted it to be clearly 
a, a model that is driven by patients and aligned with care teams. And very cleverly, we refer to it as patient-aligned care teams, which then gives us the opportunity to describe it as a pact with our patients, P-A-C-T being a pact with our patients. So uh, the, it's a five-member team. Uh, the first and foremost primary member of the team is the patient, uh, in our case, a veteran, uh, a primary care provider, an RN care manager, a clinical associate that could be an unlicensed assistive personnel or an LPN, and a clerical associate uh, to handle all of the administrative functions. So each of our patients belong to um, one of these five-member teams, and our pro providers are physicians or um, nurse practitioners or uh, physician's assistants. That is not new for our APRN roles in primary care. Um, our nurse practitioners have been uh, primary care providers for um, at least a decade, if not longer. But uh, with this model and with the uh, advantage of learning uh, all of the good uh, efforts that nurse practitioners bring to this role, uh, there are increasing numbers of nurse practitioners in the primary care provider role. We're also in the uh, beginning stages of considering how we might care for intensive management of primary in primary care of patients that require a very focused attention with uh, more specialty care team support. Our specialty care teams are uh, defined in roles and functions as well with APRMs as specialty consultants, not extenders, but consultants. Um, and they are transition agents for agents for patients with specialty care needs and don't require necessarily require uh, physician-level expertise. So these expanded roles have uh, moved in areas of um, expanded skill sets uh, with regard to procedures and other kinds of diagnostic um, requirements or um, activities. Uh, procedures perhaps such as biopsies or endoscopies um, are the kinds of things that we've been working on. We consider the specialty care teams to be uh, part of the packed neighborhood, if you will. If you think of medical home model, uh, the specialty care teams are part of um, that medical home as, uh, as it would be looked at in a neighborhood. Uh, prior to recently, our nurse practitioners as providers have worked on, in various models. Uh, they've been independent pro providers for primary care. They've also worked in a collaborative arrangement with physicians. And in some of our sites, there have been shared panels with physicians uh, in more of a supervisory capacity. That has historically been uh, based on uh, state-based requirements and standards of practice, uh, and I'll describe in a minute until recently where we're heading with that. Uh, we've also developed some centers of excellence for interprofessional with our um, academic partners for interprofessional training for physicians and nurse practitioners in primary care. So we have five sites looking at how to enhance uh, that team-based training and interprofessional academic partnership. We've moved towards uh, elevating our efforts for uh, non-face-to-face -face encounters, if you will. Um, telehealth has always been a strong suit for us, and we have implemented increasing strategies or additional strategies, such as secure messaging and um, mobile apps, et cetera, to reduce the need for non-face-to-face -face encounters when, when uh, appropriate. 
In looking at the IOM report on the future of nursing, uh, we uh, hung our hat on our longstanding federal authority for um, our nurse practitioners and clinical nurse specialists and um, CRNAs to work independently. We have the authority, uh, which I said is not new, but uh, the timing is right, to have our advanced practice nurses uh, work independently regardless of state-based practice acts. Our federal authority does supersede those state-based practice acts, and we have uh, long had an interest in moving in this direction, uh, but at um, there were too many barriers uh, in the way. So at this point in time, uh, all of those uh, good points are coming together. And so we are moving in the direction of all of our advanced practice nurses being independent practitioners, not requiring a collaborative or supervisory type um, uh, requirement with a physician partner. Obviously, collaboration is part of everybody's responsibility, so that kind of collaboration will continue, but not a required structured collaboration that some states require. So in order to move in this direction, we have implemented an interprofessional implementation team and have developed frequently asked questions addressing uh, the kinds of challenges and barriers that were anticipated and have done a lot of uh, activities around consensus building within the department as well as with um, our external stakeholders like the National Council of State Boards of Nursing and the Joint Commission uh, when it comes to uh, credentialing and privileging. So our advanced practice nurses in primary care, specialty care, will uh, move toward independent practice when we fully implement this um, in this year, 2013, and will seek privileges like any other medical staff member. What I want to say a little bit uh, more about the model is that our, our five-year strategic plan currently describes our packed and specialty care uh, care delivery models to really wrap our arms around being providing personalized, proactive, patient-driven care and looking at population health as well as individual health. Veteran as a team leader, as I mentioned earlier, and really taking a look at lifelong health and well-being developed in conjunction with a care team, so the veteran really driving that, uh, that care. Referring to personalized health approach, uh, using health coaches, et cetera, and referring to relationship-based care. Relationship-based care, uh, taking a look at uh, the veteran at the middle, but also care delivery team members understanding their relationship with the patient and how their uh, beliefs and uh, historical behaviors influence that. So it boils down to core behaviors and characteristics to achieve the desired future state of a meaningful experience for veterans shaped around their personal health goals. And I think I'll end at that. Okay, end. that's great. Well, that's super comprehensive. And um, I see some comments are already floating in here, uh, which we really uh, welcome. And, of course, you're all uh, always welcome to uh, comment with each other, but we'll start addressing questions and comments uh, in about 15 minutes. Thank you very much, uh, Kathy Rick. All right, uh, I'm going to turn next to you, Patty Garrity. A nurse-managed, federally qualified health center grows and thrives in North Philadelphia. And uh, Patty, in planning this program, and I hope I'm, I don't want to over 
overstate anything uh, trying to channel you, but I think at some level a lot of uh, what should happen with care teams seems to you almost like a bit of a no-brainer when it comes to dealing with certain communities and patients. So I'd love for you to tell us why and and what's working well for you uh, with new models uh, in your work. Welcome again. Thank you. Um, Yes, uh, I I do get tired of sometimes people asking to talk about a nurse practitioner model because I I don't think that's something new or uh, especially exciting in itself. But nurse practitioners and advanced practice nurses providing direct services with teams to me is very exciting. And I think we have to look at not just the nursing profession but the rest of the team and how we can come together. 11th Street Family Health Services of Drexel University is a nurse-managed health center, and nationally they're, they're defined as community-based health services under the leadership of an advanced practice nurse, and they usually emphasize health education, health promotion, and target the underserved. Uh, we're not alone in this. Uh, there are over 200 nurse-managed health centers in the country. Uh, about 60% of the patients they see are insured or uninsured, and 74% of these centers are associated with academic uh, nursing programs. Uh, I think 11th Street is a bit different because we are more comprehensive and use this team-based model. Uh, we operate in North Philadelphia. For those of you who don't know, you know, I'm sure what that is. It's a very uh, poor area of North Philadelphia, and we target residents of four public housing developments. Though our patients come from all over the city, about 20% are uninsured, 60% are on Medicaid, and we have do have a rising amount of people, 14% on private insurance. We are a certified medical care home, but we like to call ourselves a health care home. Uh, because we're interested in, in people's health and not strictly their medical care, and that's why we go to these integrative teams. The integrative teams really have a very high degree of collaboration and communication, and with these teams, we can have comprehensive treatment plans that address biological, psychological, and social needs of the patients. There's certainly a terrific uh, amount of need in the uh, population we see. So we have used open access, or some people know it as advanced access, so you call in the day you want to be seen. Um, we are, because of the laws in our state, we, call, we do have a collaborating physician uh, in the uh, family practice at Drexel University College of Medicine who's not on site, who is available by phone if we do need her. Our teams consist of nurse practitioners, nurse midwives, clinical and public health nurses. We've integrated behavioral health into primary care. We have complementary and integrative therapists, health educators, nutritionists, fitness trainers, physical therapists, and creative arts therapists, all as part of the primary care team. In addition, we're site for the Nurse Family Partnership for uh, Philadelphia. We also have care managers and do intensive care management, where if we have a very complex patient, uh, we'll go into the home to find out what's really going on. We know our patients have a great deal of trauma, and uh, much like the tell me uh, the story about yourself that uh, Kathy talked about, we look at not saying what is wrong with this patient, but saying what has happened with this patient. And because of all the trauma, we are now becoming certified uh, as a sanctuary site. 
Um, we provide, in addition to primary care with all this team, fitness, yoga, Reiki. We have an urban farm. We do cooking. We do physical therapy. We do meditation. And what we've found is these are the things people certainly need access to primary care. Our nurse practitioners do a great job. But it's these other things that really support them in their everyday lives that allow them to come up with a joint plan with the nurse practitioners and the rest of the team and really improve their health. Um, one of the things we're doing is, is indeed trying to measure this. So we have an electronic medical record, but we also developed something with our School of Information Science called the Patient Wellness Tracker, which gathers all this data about all these other classes and healthy living center programs that they attend so we can start looking at the outcomes uh, across time. Uh, I think one good way to explain this is the visual that I gave you. If you could show that. We'll go back to that. Do you yeah. have that available? Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Okay. Our Growing Together program, we also say we're relationship-based and patient-centered, and I think this is a great way to show it. This is actually well child care, and it's group well child care. We have group prenatal care, and then those moms and dads move into group well child care. And this is, you'll see, among the families here, you'll see a nurse practitioner, a behavioral health consultant, and a public health nurse. And the babies, the moms, and fathers now, it's a visit for the family, not just the child. So we're taking care of the whole family, and they're seeing other children and seeing the normal growth and development in the children and forming lifelong relationships with these families to build strong, resilient families. So I think I'm out of time. Okay. <laughs> but I think that visual shows you what, yeah. what primary care could look like when led by nurses and using comprehensive teams. All right. Well, thanks. You painted a picture. I wish we could take a visual tour of uh, many of the things that we're describing, 11th Street, uh, as well as now we're going to go over uh, to um, Mercy Children's Mercy Hospitals in Kansas City. Um, but uh, thank you very much, and hopefully I, people are already uh, chomping at the bit with questions, so we'll get to those in just a few minutes. And, Daryl, uh, you'll kind of round out this first half hour for us and tell us uh, also what's going on uh, in um, the hospital system there, but equally with adolescent medicine. Thanks. Well, thank you for the invitation for to have some comments with this discussion. For those people who are not familiar with Children's Mercy or Kansas City, we're a regional uh, pediatric health system. We have 355 inpatient beds, do around 350,000 outpatient visits per year, 150,000 ER, 150, ER urgent care visits. So a big multi-campus system around the metro Kansas City area, which does include Kansas and Missouri. We're, we're sitting on the state line. In our system, we have two hospitals. One is urban, one is suburban, as well as we have outpatient buildings uh, scattered around the city that basically encircle the city, as well as one that's downtown. And through that, um, we employ uh, somewhere around 6,500 employees, um, have a medical staff of around 650 to 700 at any one time, of which... 450 or so are pediatric subspecialists. We employ around 2,200 nurses and around 230 to 240 APRNs at any time. Through our 
uh, managed care company that the hospital system owns. We're responsible for about 110,000 lives for uh, complete care under a managed care contract. We're also, we were the first Magna Hospital in Kansas and Missouri and maintain that designation as well as rank um, in all 10 categories in U.S. News and World Report. So we're a very, very large system of care that has begun to, um, well, more than has begun, but has embraced the APRN role over the years um, and certainly have have. Uh, great examples of how we're extending in, into APRN leadership more and more. Because of our collaborative practice um, laws within our two states, uh, we do have agreements with physicians with our APRNs with a limit of four and geographic location uh, limitations. So to take you to more of the adolescent clinic or the adolescent medicine division and how we're uh, set up and, and using APRNs. Um, I joined the hospital in 1991, and I was trained at the University of Arizona in adolescent medicine, where I credit probably 40 to 50 percent of my education was given to me by APRNs. So I valued APRNs from the very beginning in my medical training. Uh, not to mention that at the time I was married to a nurse, um, and through all those contacts, I learned that doctors drool and nurses rule. So I had that down for a long time. I valued the APN, but we've initially hired so much that we've expanded that over the years to now we employ six APRNs um, who staff a wide variety of um, academic as well as primary care and even specialty care clinics around the metro Kansas City area. We have a teen clinic uh, that's around 7,800 square feet. Uh, we do we see about 12,000 visits per year, um, and that, the APRNs are certainly a big part of that care that goes on there. As well, I've tried to place APRNs at community sites and have them have ownership over the site that they serve, and those include a residential psychiatric center, a homeless and runaway sh uh, shelter, uh, juvenile detention, and several of the juvenile court um, homes that, that are run by this system as well as school-based clinics, and our eating disorder program now is com the, the uh, health component is completely run by an APRN at this point. Over the past several years, I've been able to transition um, physicians or at those locations that were, that were being served by physicians. I was able to transition over to the APRN, who actually, because of the theories um, of, of learning that, that uh, nursing is based on versus the medical uh, learning that we go through, I, I think that there's been a great service to the community, to the agency, and to the teams in those facilities uh, that has, has really made a difference um, versus having a physician being there. Mm -hmm. We are also, through our primary care clinics, um, and there is a kind of a general pediatrics uh, division that is very um, complicated, complex kind of system that has primary care homes uh, located throughout the city. 
we are NCQA Medical Home designated for some of those clinics, and we're still working on others to get them named. But I think one of the most uh, rewarding things recently that I've seen is how, through our multidisciplinary team approach, and we, and we also have an uh, electronic medical record system that crosses all sites and all locations, what I've seen is the APRNs have been able to add the continuity of care for the teens that we care for. And again, we, we see a very high Medicaid population, high percentage for primary care. The subspecialty care is, is about 50-50 commercial and Medicaid. But for these teens that go in and out of the agencies I've mentioned, particularly juvenile detention as well as some of the more treatment-oriented facilities, what I love hearing from the teens is, oh, my gosh, you're everywhere. (laughs) And through the EMR, we know what anybody else in our system has done, and that provides that continuity of care with the primary care person um, oftentimes being the APRN. Wow. I've also... Oh, go uh, ahead. Sorry. Embra- I'm also embraced um, that the APRNs take on leadership roles, and, and particularly with our medical homework, the APRNs are very instrumental in leadership for the application process, but also developing the team teams, looking at the outcomes, and then maintaining those um, standards and care So to sum it all up, um, APRNs are a huge part of my world and always have been since I've started practice in 1991 as an adolescent medicine uh, specialist and look forward to uh, expanding those roles further throughout the, the outpatient arena for sure, which is kind of my area of the hospital system that I oversee. Thank you so much, Daryl. I, I, I've, as always on WIHI, we give people this daunting task of describing an awful lot of work uh, and experience uh, in some very, very boiled down ways, but I think you hit some high points as everyone has on the program. Um, we're just about to open things up for questions and comments, but I think just for one minute, if we could make it kind of a nugget, uh, Sue Hess-Miller, since we started with you, um, I'm, of course, it's sort of been thinking about some of the themes running through everyone's remarks, and one that uh, occurs to me is the patient-centered medical home as a model um, sort of helping to reinforce uh, an awful lot of what folks are also discovering uh, really makes sense in terms of um, staff to deploy and and take advantage of. Uh, Quickly, are there any other themes that you hear uh, in the remarks of, of our other guests today? What I'm hearing, Madge, is that um, there are are a number of providers who must collaborate together, and um, they each have their own set of um, unique set of skills and experiences. And depending upon what the situation demands or calls for, um, that's really the provider who should be perhaps um, stepping up to the plate 
um, working with that team. That's what I hear. Okay. All right. Very, very good. All right. Uh, John, just quickly remind everybody, clearly many folks have already uh, figured out the chat. And a reminder, any of you who've just joined by phone, um, as in you're only joined by phone, don't despair. Uh, if you want, at the end of the program, you can email info at IHI.org, and we'll be glad to send the chat uh, to you so you can see this uh, back and forth that goes on. But, John, just a reminder, if people can uh, uh, make some comments on the chat. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone, um, for uh, for joining us today. And um, when you're chatting at us, make sure you send to all participants. I know some uh, some of you have already figured that out. Uh, and that way, everybody here in the studio and everybody uh, at home can see what your great questions are. All right. Thanks, everyone. You've got the hang of it um, as well. All right. I see a number of people who are having robust conversations uh, with one another about nurse practitioners and physician's assistants, uh, getting right down into it around wages and numbers who are available, et cetera. Um, I, several questions uh, have been asked about um, kind of patient load panels, uh, kind of how that kind of thing is determined. And I'm not sure who I should go to first, but maybe I'll go back to Kathy and uh, just see if uh, you're kind of working off any particular models uh, in determining uh, how many patients that, say, a nurse practitioner might be responsible for. Sure. Thanks, Madge. Uh, first, I want to start off by saying that um, our, our assignment of patient panels uh, has some distinctly different uh, notions to it than uh, most uh, primary care provider panels. In the private sector and perhaps in other public health public sectors, um, panels of patients are uh, any patients that are enrolled, but not uh, and typically may use their primary care provider maybe once a year, maybe just you know whenever they need uh, to access that care um, on a uh, intermittent basis, and it could be every three years. If I use myself as an example, not maybe the best example, but. <laughs> Um, what's different is that we count um, our panels for those patients who actively um, receive care for us. So typically in the private sector, when you read the literature, and I did post um, a recent um, article in Health Affairs that uh, people might want to take a look at, uh, the ratio uh, tends to be around uh, 2,500 patients per provider. Uh, physician provider is what's typically uh, reported in the industry because there typically isn't any data around nurse practitioner panel sizes, which is a problem. Uh, we in the VA have uh, panel sizes closer to 1,200 or 1,500 for physician uh, providers because of the um, intensity of the workload. However, now with our new um, team-based model, we are giving serious consideration to uh, increasing that panel size. Prior to this, we didn't have that robust team that I described earlier. Nurse practitioners, uh, until now, have had panel sizes that are about 75% of our physician providers. But we also need to take a look at that because if each nurse practitioner is assigned the same number of uh, primary care core team members to manage that panel of patients, uh, there may be uh, a need to look at uh, the same panel size for whoever the provider is. So we are we are looking at those dynamics uh, at this point in time. And I do want to um, make mention of some of the comments that I saw on the chat um, are very appropriately emphasizing uh, the interprofessional team that needs to be 
um, wrapped around all care delivery models, um, primary care as well as specialty care. And we certainly do encompass um, and expand our uh, teams to include particularly social workers, clinical pharmacists, uh, and nutritionists, um, dietitians, uh, as well as um, each of our primary care teams have embedded mental health specialists as well, which I did not mention earlier. Mm -hmm. So the psychosocial and behavioral needs as well as the um, need to look at um, health promotion, disease prevention, health, health risk behaviors, and um, lifestyle modification are all parts of um, the continuum, and continuum as well as package of care around primary care um, that we talk about. Okay, thanks, uh, Kathy. Patty, is there anything you want to say about that in terms of numbers of uh, patients, uh, recognizing that we're talking also about a very multidisciplinary model? And uh, maybe I'll ask uh, you also to I'll tag on to your question, um, clinical nurse specialists. Uh, somebody's asking whether or not folks are taking advantage of uh, those people as well. Uh, right now, a, a family nurse practitioner is seeing about a panel of about 1,200. Um, unfortunately, we are at capacity. I think sometimes they're up to 1,500 just because of such a demand. Um, so they're seeing qu quite a number of people. Uh, clinical specs we haven't been using at the center, though yesterday we were talking about using a psych clin spec, the possibility of doing that but we have not been using it. Can you say what that is? Uh, a psychiatric nurse to help. We've been using uh, licensed clinical social workers in the integrated behavioral health role, but you could use a psych NP or a clinical ah. specialist those roles, too. It's a matter of reimbursement. I see. Okay, that sounds really good. Um, and clinical nurse specialists, is that something that would figure in your model, or I don't, maybe that's more relevant uh, uh, to, to Daryl in the uh, acute care setting? Um, Patty, I'll start with you on that. I think it is more in the acute care setting yeah. than, than we have in, uh, in ours. Okay. Daryl, are you using clinical nurse uh, specialists? We we have a small cadre, but I think that we've moved more towards the APRN role um, than the clinic specialist. They're, they're very, very um, focused in what they do for the, for the specialists that we have. Um, and really, we, as far as I can think uh, right now, we, I, I, just, I think there's very few, actually. Okay. And this is Kathy Med. Go ahead. Uh, here, I'll, I'll chime in on that as well. We have nearly 5,000 nurse practitioners in our system mm -hmm. um, in the context of 80,000 nursing staff members. Um, so yeah. uh, that probably needs to be, uh, it's about 5.5.5% of our total nursing workforce, including unlicensed assistive personnel. We have around 500 clinical nurse specialists. I don't think we have enough clinical nurse specialists. Our clinical nurse specialists are uh, focused on roles at the macro system level rather than um, at a micro system or, uh, level. So uh, very much engaged in um, specialty care, as Daryl mentioned, uh, as part of the, the specialty uh, care clinical teams. Um, providing consultation uh, to and working within the team of uh, physicians, uh, social workers, as well as uh, pharmacists and uh, 
in those specialty care teams. However, um, as Patty mentioned, we have also launched um, an effort to include clinical nurse specialists as primary care providers in our mental health um, specialty care teams and our intensive uh, specialty care team, I'm sorry, primary care teams for mental health patients. Okay, thanks uh, very much. Patty brought up uh, using a patient wellness tracker uh, in terms of measurement, and one question I was going to ask you, Patty, is whether or not uh, there's even an example of that, uh, that if you were comfortable sharing that with us, we might be able to add that to the resource document, but it did make me wonder about what you're tracking and what you're measuring, Um, and perhaps uh, I could ask you kind of return to that theme with you and then if others want to chime in as well. Sure. The electronic medical record is sometimes hard to add the, some of the, the complex things that we're doing. So we put attendance in there for groups, uh, for all the healthy living center programs, for yoga. Uh, you slide a card when you come to the fitness center. But we're also tracking the outcomes of things like changes in, in the SF36 quality of life, which we're finding changes in. We're looking at, we're using the, for the children in the well child, we're looking at the parental stress index because that's really helping us guide uh, and and screen for parents who are having problems if there's a, a possible problem with attachment for the children. So we have uh, maybe 15 different screening instruments we use. We're just starting to do the adverse childhood event screening. And then we can pull this, this patient wellness tracker pulls some electronic medical record. So we could look at people's participations in fitness or in yoga and superimpose it on a graph of their BMI or their blood pressure or hemoglobin A1C over time. So we're doing things like that. We're still trying to do some more, uh, allow it to do some more uh, uh, analytic things. Okay, great. Anyone else doing anything uh, particularly interesting with sort of measurement that in part makes some connection between uh, the models that you're all talking about today and uh, what difference it makes uh, for the patient populations? Uh, Daryl? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, we do all kinds of measurements and outcomes, but it's, I think it's more of the traditional tracking okay. for healthcare indicators and the, the usual kind of heat of measures and, um, you know, immunization rates, okay. and well, well, child checks, and that. I can't think of anything <laughs> that I truly can uh, add as far as being very creative or innovative at this point. Okay. I'm going to, Sue Hassmiller, I'm going to bounce back to you with a question that's also popping up here on the chat, which is sort of an interesting one in that in many ways um, what we're talking about here on this program is sort of harnessing all that clinical staff are capable of, including advanced practice nurses. At the same time, some people are asking, is there anything about what's going on right now that's also indicating some additional kinds of education uh, that NPs may be needing uh, even to fulfill this further. Sue, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I I wanted to hearken back just a moment, uh, Madge, and let the audience know that probably within the year, we will have some kind of report on um, primary care teams, 
um, the, the roles people are playing, the efficiencies, the effectiveness. We have about 30 primary care sites we're looking at right now um, and studying them. Um, as we do at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and we'll be able to um, um, let uh, America and, and our world know just what's going on with uh, very effective primary care teams. All right, well, we'll look um, for the that. The other thing I wanted to mention in the spirit of interprofessional collaboration is the foundation um, just this last year, uh, and it's still ramping up, has co-funded a center for um, interprofessional um, collaboration and education and interprofessional collaboration um, in Minnesota. We have co-funded that with um, HRSA, Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, and the Macy Foundation. And it will be really a go-to center for um, interprofessional collaboration. So as I said, that's still ramping up, and people will be able to take advantage of that center uh, fairly shortly. Okay, thanks. In and, terms and of can I chime in for a sec? Who, yeah, please. Oh, do, yes. This is Patty. I just want to say uh, I'm pretty excited because it's only recently that we found out that 11th Street has been selected as one of those uh, <laughs> very care practices to participate in Project LEAP that, she was, that Sue was just mentioning. Well, congratulations. <laughs> That's ambulatory well, there you go. It wasn't public, but there you go. There's the 11th Street Health Center. <laughs> Listen, breaking news on That's, WIHI all the time. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Breaking headlines. <laughs> Thanks, Patty. So the nurse... Practitioners and um, more education. You know, um, I'll start in on this, but I know that um, uh, Patty and Kathy will add to this as well. Um, We've had a model for a very long time now where nurse practitioners are educated and trained at the, um, always at the master's level, uh, at the graduate level, I should say. Um, with a master's degree, and the um, the nursing workforce has moved recently, within the last couple of years, um, to a doctorate in nursing practice. So you'll see a lot more nurse practitioners coming out with this degree, and the decision was made by a number of nursing leadership organizations in the country that because of the uh, demands uh, and the technicalities uh, of, of health care uh, and the complexities, um, it, it's really what is needed to be the best nurse practitioner possible. I think that's what you were asking, Madge. Yes, exactly. And I think it, it'll be interesting because as all this experience is being rolled up, I think it will by, uh, it's inevitable that it will become part of curricula uh, as this experience and of course uh, as folks are doing uh, on-site uh, clinical rotations. Boy, there's a lot of fantastic questions here, so uh, bear with us. We'll try and get to as many as possible. Here was an interesting one that I uh, liked which is uh, any uh, measurement or tracking of uh, differences in terms of follow-up visits uh, in regards to a patient that maybe has been primarily seen by a nurse practitioner versus a physician's assistant or a a physician. I'm not sure uh, we have the answer to that, but I thought I'd throw it out there. Anyone? All right. So I can come in a little bit on Daryl, okay. Um, Within our team clinic, um, we observed that we had fallen into very much a clinical, uh, or I mean, became a clinic. So it's kind of like the next chart on the rack. You go pick up and go see that patient, which has led to the deterioration of continuity of care for patients. And so probably a year, year and a half ago, we made a commitment that our 
as the pilot group to try to do this. We'd choose our APRNs because of the complexity of the, um, the number of medical students and residents and fellows that come through our clinic. Um, it, was, it was more difficult to get a handle on that. And uh, we have residents that do a continuity experience through their three years. And so we have a lot of faces coming and going for the patients. And so we decided that we would, we would really try to get the APRNs to have continuity, and, and uh, we don't have any hardcore data to show at this point, but subjectively I can tell you that I get a lot of comments as the director of the clinic from parents that are very, very satisfied that they're seeing the same person in, in our clinic now, that's the APRN, versus kind of the, we'll see anybody there is. Um, I wanted to also comment that we've taken on the task of developing standards of ambulatory excellence, and within those standards, our next step that we're pursuing is to begin looking at how APRNs are used around the hospital and putting a, putting a standard there that no longer can an APRN be somebody's you know, personal assistant or scribe or... <laughs> You know, something like that, so that we're, we're beginning to measure productivity and see how those people are placed and trying to ask the hard questions of, you know, will we tell a physician leader, you, you, if you're not going to use APRNs um, effectively and productively to, to their highest ability, then we may take those resources away from people. So wow. that may be something that's kind of new and different around uh, as far as an innovative measurement. Yes, that's very, very. We'll, we'll have to circle back with you uh, about that one. Thanks, Daryl. I'm just going to bring John Gothier in here just for a moment because uh, we always hope that some of the other things we're doing here at IHI will be helpful and reinforce some things. So a reminder about our summit, John. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Madge. Uh, today's conversation is really focused on new innovations in teams and how they're coming together to improve care for patients across the continuum. Uh, and for most patients, the continuum starts with primary care, and uh, we're excited to invite everyone to IHI's 14th annual International Summit on Improving Patient Care in the Office Practice and the Community this April 7th and 9th in Scottsdale, Arizona. I know that's a mouthful, so we just call it the summit around here. Uh, At the summit, you'll explore cutting-edge improvements, best practices, and learn from peers, colleagues, and IHI's outstanding faculty about improving care in office practices, outpatient settings, and at home in the community. And whether you're a beginner in improvement work or a veteran with years of experience, uh, I think you'll be inspired to see the future of patient care differently. For more information on the summit, uh, visit IHI.org backslash summit. Thanks, John, very, very much. All right, I'm going to, um, I think what I'm going to do now, because we're getting to that point in the show, I, I do think, let me just uh, tell our guests, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to go around the horn and ask you all to just make some final remarks, uh, kind of wrap-up remarks, just so you know some of the outstanding things people have asked about is uh, uh, wanting to learn more about um, MPs and their role with behavioral health, population health. Uh, those are some of the ideas I'm, I'm again, always impressed 
just when those of you on the chat are helping one another. Uh, some great questions coming from someone in Bermuda and uh, who's sort of just trying to get her feet wet or his feet wet with all this stuff, and you folks are just piling on with fantastic resources. So that's terrific. But let me go around the horn, and uh, maybe I'll, I'll start with Sue. Uh, and Sue, actually, you maybe you can just fold this into kind of some parting words for us today. Uh, somebody did ask, how can we ensure that all the things that are going forward with the Affordable Care Act uh, also begin to embrace uh, these new care models? Now, that, of course, could be a show unto itself, but uh, maybe just uh, we'll tee off with that. Well, uh, yeah, that is another show, Matt, okay. and it's something yeah. that um, all of these things we're looking very carefully at at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, you know, I will just uh, leave it at that, and let, let me just say one thing. I I just had lunch with a colleague of mine at the foundation here today whose husband had a very traumatic surgery over Christmas. He had a leg amputation, but she was so pleased. She said that every provider worked so collaboratively together, and one knew what the other one had done and vice versa, and there were just no complications and hiccups communications with care. And with that traumatic surgery, they were so pleased. That's the goal here. Okay. Well, well said. And that's really gets us right to the patient. So thank you very much. Uh, Sue, uh, Kathy, maybe some uh, final thoughts from you. And we're so grateful that you were part of this today. Uh, actually, it's been very exciting to be part of it. I guess my final thoughts, uh, especially since we've um, targeted this discussion to focus on the role of APRNs in this care transition, um, even though there's so many elements to the care tra- transition that are very, very important. The APRN role is something that needs to be highlighted, focused on, and understood better. Uh, I would like to emphasize that um, APRNs are not physician extenders. They are not mid-level providers. They are uh, clinicians who are prepared to do the work that they're prepared to do. So I would hope that we would um, somehow get to the point of looking at um, nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists, CRNAs, nurse midwives, as a collective group of talented individuals who are prepared to do the work that is needed as part of a team. When I talked about our teams, um, I didn't emphasize but should have emphasized that no one member of the team is more important than the other, nor is one considered a leader over the other, other than the patient. Uh, We did not expand our teams in order to reduce the workload of physician providers or nurse practitioner providers. It was meant to address the needs of our patients. So I do think we um, have a long way to go to understand uh, the best avenues to move us in the direction of team-based care. And I think um, our quality measures and indicators that don't capture outcomes related to nurse practitioners are a barrier to that, so I do think we need to focus on that. Okay. And um, hopefully that'll help us. Okay. Well, wonderful. Thank you very much, Uh, Kathy. Patty, some uh, final thoughts from you. Patty Garrity. Yes, we were talking about teams, and I realized the one thing I left out is also more about teams of nurses and how we can link our, our health center staff with our community health nurses and how we can start to bridge between what happens in a health center and what happens in everyday life in a patient's home. And I think we should think about those um, community health nurses as part of primary care also. Thanks, Patty. Somebody had been asking uh, more about the home environment, so I'm glad you made that comment. Okay, thank you. Daryl? Well, it's always 
nice to try to sum up a very complicated <laughs> topic in right. one sentence or two. But, uh, you know, I think, I think what I hear is uh, there's a lot of work to be done, but as long as we're communicating and we're collaborating and we're respectful of one another, but most importantly, respectful of the, the mindset that the patient is everything here. And as long as, when I get into meetings and there's any contention going on about who's doing what, I always bring it back to it's all about the patient. And as long as we're doing the right thing for the patient, then that's what we should be doing. All right. So I guess that's what I was emphasize is just let's all keep going, you know, keep working together and remember the patient. Right. Well, that's fantastic. And your work, each of you, is to be celebrated. I'm so glad we were able to capture it, even in this brief way. A big thank you to Sue Hassmiller, Kathy Rick, Patty Garrity, and Daryl Lynch. And a reminder also that if you want to make some comments on IHI's Facebook page, Jane Rossner listens into WIHI uh, on our behalf and often has a, a, a great uh, summary comment or two or something that uh, struck her that she throws up there. And then you're welcome to pile on. I noticed in the chat today that a lot of people were using their Twitter handles as they made comments. So I think you'll all be maybe talking to one another more and following each other. But again, uh, when you log off the show, you can uh, request any of the slides we showed um, as well as the chat. And we do ask if you wouldn't mind to fill out a brief survey because we're always trying to understand how the show was effective for you and what we could do to improve it. also want to remind everybody that on January 24th, that's just two weeks from now, we're kind of back in business with WIHI for 2013. We're going to be looking at a partnership to reduce reduce deaths from sepsis, and that's a partnership between IHI and the North Shore Long Island Jewish Health System. Very excited about that program as well. By tomorrow morning, uh, this program will be available to you as well as all the resources, so please take advantage of them, and believe me, if there's any question or anything that anyone said that was confusing that you'd like clarification on, you can email info at IHI.org. The people who help make this program possible are Mike Sweet. Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse. It does take a village, folks. And we have some nice original music that opens and closes the show. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care. Most of all, today was no exception for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day. See you soon. <laughs>